0: And so the idea was that you're creating a different problem-solving conversation rather than an accusatory conversation. And that, I think, is the beginning of trying to create a culture that supports this kind of thing. The Ethicist Corner, brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics.
1: Welcome, everybody, to The Ethicist Corner, a podcast in which we discuss ethics in everyday life. My guest today is Dr. Mary Gentili, a professor of practice at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business. Senior advisor at the Aspen Institute Business and Society Program, and a consultant on management education and leadership development. Dr. Gentili is the creator and director of Giving Voice to Values, an ethics curriculum that has been piloted in over 1,240 business schools and organizations around the world. This includes in the US, China, India, South Africa, Europe, the Middle East, and beyond. Among numerous awards, Dr. Gentili was named as one of the hundred most influential in business ethics by Ethosphere in 2015. and was named one of the top minds of 2017 in ethics leadership by Compliance Week. Dr. Gentile will be joining the Kegley Institute on October 22nd at 6 p.m. Pacific for a free and open public lecture via Zoom titled Giving Voice to Values, the How of Values-Driven Leadership. Uh, the Zoom link for this talk is available on KIE social media um, it's also available at csub.edu backslash K-I-E. This is the Kegley website, or you can email the Kegley Institute at ethics at csub.edu
0: for more information on this event.
1: So Dr. Jatilli, welcome to the Ethicist Corner.
0: Thank you, I'm delighted to be here.
1: So I, I wanted to note, actually, just uh, on a personal note that uh, it's been a while, but actually we met uh, several years back. Uh, I was working at the UNC Chapel Hill Parsif for Ethics.
0: Oh, yes, yes. I so, remember being there.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I was I I was right out of grad school. I, that was my first uh, position out of grad school, and I was I was doing outreach coordination for the Parsoner for Ethics. And I remember your talk and your workshop well. It had a had a big impact on me. And, oh, and I'm so glad. Yeah, so happy to have you at the Kegley Institute this time around.
0: Oh well, thank you. It's great to see you again.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, great to see you too. So um, to start. Uh, Can you talk to us about how you became interested in a career in ethics education?
0: Yeah, it was sort of an accident. (laughs) Um, I actually uh, studied literature and film, Uh, got my doctorate in literature and film, published a book in film and feminist theory. Um, But uh, I, I moved to Boston and I got a job at Harvard and I was working with Harvard PhDs in the arts and sciences who were trying to make a switch to business, and doing that, I reached out to Harvard Business School to see if I could get them sort of transitional jobs, and um, they recruited me. They said, oh, we like you. Why don't you come and, and, and do some research for us here at the business school? So I went over there to write case studies, and after about six months, I, they asked me to run their case writing program, which meant I, you know, hired and trained their 60-plus case writers, which gave me sort of an on-the-job MBA because I was working with folks who were writing case studies in finance or in marketing or HR, etc. Um, and I did that for a couple of years and then I got bored and said, you know, I want, it's great, but I want to do something that feels a little more meaningful. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, well, you know, we're going to start this ethics program. Would you like to do research and help us develop the curriculum? So I started to do that. Um, and it just really got me engaged, <laughs> you know? And so the rest is sort of history. So I was there for 10 years. I helped to, um, I was part of the team that created their first required curriculum in ethics and leadership. And then later I, I um, designed and taught their first course on managing diversity. Um, and I went on from there.
1: <laughs> so, so did you find that your, your background in literature and film was like, a, was an asset to you in this work? Was it like a seamless transition or how did that, How did that background play into what you're doing now?
0: It was really interesting. Um, When I first started working at the business school and taking some courses there, it was really a culture shock because, you know, if you're in a a, a graduate program in the humanities, and literature and film as I was, you know, the whole idea is to take a a single line of text or perhaps a certain scene from, from a film and to open it up into as many meanings as possible. And what I found in the business school curriculum is that we would take these complex case studies with lots of data and lots of information, mm-hmm. and the idea was to bring it all down to a single point. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. it was a totally different intellectual process. And I liked; I felt there was a value in both, rather than just one or just the other. Mm-hmm. So I actually think it helped me a lot. I think it's a, a large part of why I was able to create giving voice to values because. Giving voice to values is if I hadn't understood narrative, I don't think I would have understood that what GVV is all about is looking at the same situation that someone else might look at and actually being able to see there might be some other ways to interpret it. There might be some other options. There might be some other action uh, potential that would be available to me. So I kind of feel like I was lucky to have sort of both of these intellectual frames.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, that kind of combination of uh, areas of expertise and the way they've come together in your career. Um, so you mentioned your curriculum um, and your program, Giving Voice to Values. Uh, maybe to start, um, what does it mean to voice your values? Uh, mm-hmm. Can you kind of tell our audience about what that phrase means for you?
0: Yeah, and, and it's a great question because you know I do a lot of work globally. And you know, I've learned there are certain things that I need to explain when I go into a very different culture from, from my own. Um, and one of them is to explain that the voice in giving voice to values is a metaphor. Um, and so it does not mean going to your boss and shaking your fist and telling him or her that they're all wrong. And you know, it, it actually is a much more sophisticated, much more nuanced, much more tactical uh, kind of process. So it might mean having a one-on-one conversation with someone. It might mean building a set of allies, you know, finding that you need to work through the coalition. It might mean um, doing some research and gathering new data and making it available to the decision makers. It might simply mean asking some new questions mm-hmm. or talking to someone who talks to someone who has the ear of the decision maker, mm-hmm. or any number of other approaches, which is part of what we unpack uh, when we use the Giving Voice to Values curriculum and pedagogy. So it's really a metaphor for, in one way or another, and usually multiple ways, um, raising a values-based position and hopefully being influential in terms of uh, the outcome.
1: Yeah. So I, I find this really fascinating. I mean, I I've been doing work in ethics education for. Um, over a decade now and the Keglin Institute does a lot of community ethics workshops and ethics trainings for faculty and students and we've used your text before for, for some wow. of our programming so I found it very useful so it's great to be able to talk with you about this um, you know in person.
0: I, I was looking at your bio and I was excited to see that you work both in an academic setting and outside an academic yeah. setting because the- more and more I'm, I'm doing some of that as well so I'm delighted to see that.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, Mary, that's, I think, one of the coolest things for me about having come to the Kegley Institute is I've worked at several ethics institutes, um, you know, across the country, and I think, I mean, we have uh, at least half of our footprint is completely beyond the campus, so we really mm-hmm. have, you know, really rich collaborations with the community, and that, and that informs your work in really interesting ways, right, and the way that you think about how you do your educational work, and the type of language you use, and what you learn from the people you're working with, and that, that's kind of actually leads me to a question for you. I mean, when you're doing this giving voice to values work in these trainings, can you paint a picture for our audience a bit about the kind of audiences you're working with? Is this students in a business school? Is this um, you know practicing CEOs? Um, you know, kind of, Who are the people in the room with you or the kinds of people in the room with you when you're doing this training?
0: Yeah, uh, it, it, it basically has evolved. When I, when I created GVV, when I first started um, using it and, and sharing it, I thought my audience were, was going to be MBA students, graduate business students. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, it's used in in graduate MBA programs. And I also wanted it to not be just ethics classes. I was trying to create a pedagogy that um, if you were teaching accounting or you were teaching economics or you're teaching marketing that you could apply this methodology because it actually addressed a lot of the concerns that faculty in those courses have when you ask them to integrate values or ethics into their teaching, because it's not—it's not, it's not um, uh, ethical dilemmas. It's more here's a here's an ethical position that's not always easy to act on. How can you use the tools and frameworks and language of your discipline to be effective?
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: it's, uh, that was my original goal. Um, it was a modest goal. I wanted to yeah. transform MBA education, <laughs> but it's actually grown beyond that now. So. We work with corporations and when we work with companies, we work, we, you know, meet with the senior executives and people all the way down to factory floor uh, kinds of workers. We have worked with NGOs, we've worked with the United Nations, um, the IAEA, um, we've worked with the US military. Um, um, and, and it's not just me, you know, part of GBV is, is a methodology that we make available widely. And other people use it. So some of the audiences I'm talking about, I have actually met with and others, people who are using the methodology work with. So there are faculty who are now doing workshops in their communities. Um, I know a couple of accounting faculty who've been using it for years in their undergraduate accounting education and now, and then they started to work with um, accounting practitioners who need to get continuing education units in ethics. And then now they're starting to work with uh, women in the community, women's leadership workshops, um, which I think is kind of interesting. And we've started to work across professions. So we did a convening at Villanova Law School last year where we had uh, faculty who use this in legal education as well as legal practitioners. Um, we've started to work with healthcare. Um, I'm actually doing a keynote for the Center for Advanced Palliative Care Conference in December. Um, We've met with uh, medical schools and nursing schools in Australia. Right now, I'm working with the um, Australian Institute of Health and Safety, which is kind of like the Australian OSHA. It's occupational health and safety professionals. Mm we have also done work with the... um, um, the Chartered Financial Analyst Institute. They've created an online training program for their global members, and we're working with financial markets in Australia. So it's really a wide swath of people. I'm actually working right now. I'm excited. There's a woman in Johannesburg and a gentleman in the UK who are interested in adapting it for secondary schools. Oh, awesome. Fantastic.
1: Yeah, no, that, I mean, and that would be wonderful. I mean, the the more, we can start these discussions early, right? Kind of in K through twelve context, and that's actually something that you know I've worked on in the past, and our institute's worked on too, working with teachers to introduce ethics and social emotional learning in schools. So that you're definitely firmly committed to that work. Um, I, I, I'm interested in, in the, this broad range of context you mentioned for the the GVV curriculum. Um, it's really fascinating here about kind of the, the the different groups, different disciplines, um, different professions that you're working with. Can you? Can you tell us about you know, maybe one or two like, central elements of a successful ethics education programming for these contexts? Like When you think about the work you're doing and what makes it successful, what, what are, are, are the kind of qualities or practices that you think translate well across these diverse contexts and are, are, are impactful in making this work successful?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. So I guess I could kind of answer it in a couple ways. I mean, one way to answer it is sort of the mindset <laughs> that GVB kind of allows and opens up for people. Um, I always te- tell people, you know, that what I'm hoping it will do is help people realize they have more choices than they think they do. <laughs> um, you know, we know from the research in psychology and, and, and behavioral ethics that when people confront ethical challenges, we often react automatically, often almost unconsciously, emotionally, and then rationalize post-hoc why it was the right thing to do or even the only thing we could do. And Mm -hmm. so what I'm trying to do is to sort of rewire that connection so that we've had the experience and and the exposure to different ways of responding. So your immediate emotional reaction has more breadth to it, you know, that there's, there's more possibilities. So that's kind of a mindset thing. But in terms of practices, um, really the heart of GVV is what I call the giving voice to values thought experiment. So we don't ask people, here's a scenario, what would you do? Um, Because if we ask that, we get three kinds of answers and none of them help me. You get the answer from people who say, well, I know what you want me to say, Mary, but it's not possible in the real world. And they may be really being honest, you know, but, you know. And then there may be the people who say, well, um, you know, I'll just do the right thing, you know. And we know they may really mean that, but in reality, often they don't for a lot of reasons. And then you get the third kind of answer where people just argue with the premise and they say it's not wrong. So any one of those answers will not get you to that that rehearsal and pre-scripting and practice and peer coaching that I'm trying to do to build that kind of moral muscle memory, which allows you to feel like you have more options. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I don't even ask, what would you do? Instead, it's sort of a pedagogical sleight of hand. Instead, we, we ask, well, what if you were this protagonist who's decided that this is what he or she thinks is right? How could they get it done effectively? Mm -hmm. So now what you're doing is you're, you're helping people To show they're sophisticated and smart and they've been around the organizational block. They're kind of savvy by figuring out how to do the thing that everyone says it's impossible to do so it's a much more uh, rather than thou shalt not and constraints on action, which I find doesn't appeal to most business students you know Um, it's it's more about can do it's like how could you do the thing that everyone says it's so hard to do right so but those are kind of the mindset is more choices and the practice is prescripting, reversal um peer coaching
1: yeah that's interesting um and so is this you know in terms of the um people thinking about kind of putting themselves in the position of a protagonist and you know um uh you know, thinking through their actions in light of kind of the, the 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 case study that you're that you're discussing with the group, is that related to what you discuss in your book about kind of people developing what you call scripts um, to respond to ethical challenges or questionable practices? And and if so, can you can you tell us what you mean by people developing a script and how that how you use that in your trainings?
0: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I think sometimes you know, it was, it was word I chose probably because of my background in yeah. film, <laughs> but, but sometimes it's misleading to people. Sometimes people think it means you need to have this little set speech, you know? And so what I've found, in fact, the very first time GV was ever used in a classroom was in a second year MBA class on corporate governance at Yale School of Management with, um, Ira Milstein, you know the much-renowned uh, uh, lawyer and corporate governance expert, mm-hmm. and and that's what the first we did it two days, and the first day the students all came in with these little scripts, you know, and they appealed to all the theories of corporate governance and the laws and regulations, etc. And you know, I kind of said, you know, would you really say that, and would it work, <laughs> you know? And they kind of realized, well, maybe not. And so I said, what you need to do, and I realized I need to. To say this often, and I encourage other faculty to do so, or trainers, is that to think of it as a decision tree of scripts. You know, we're basically—it's like here's the position you want to take. What are the um, objections you anticipate? You know, we call them reasons and rationalizations then what might you say? And what if they said this, then what might you say? So the idea is you're creating all kinds of options. I always tell people it's like having as many arrows in your quiver as possible. Uh And, you know, we work them through a set of questions to understand, you know, what's at stake for all the players so that they might be able to anticipate a little better the kind of uh, concerns they might encounter. And either have good responses to them or be able to mitigate the risks to the people you're trying to influence you know all of that but the script idea is simply that you know you're more likely to say something you've already practiced saying and so a lot of what we're doing is helping people to think well you know she's going to say we don't have time for that let's practice how we're going to how we're going to respond to that
1: right so it sounds like i mean a little bit kind of a practice makes, well, maybe if not perfect, it makes you better. Makes right? better,
0: makes more likely. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. And it also, it also kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, Aristotle, I mean, this kind of habituation that you become just by doing just actions, right? You become good by doing good actions. And and so it seems like that that's reminded me of that a little bit too. I'm
0: so glad you said that because, uh, you know, that's, that was one of the sources of GBV was Aristotle yeah. <laughs> and praxis all right. and all of that. Yeah.
1: So I've been really, I mean, I've really enjoyed working with your framework and it's been a great tool kind of in the, the, the work that I've done in, in ethics workshops and my team, too. And I, you know, there's kind of a question that I get um, from time to time when I'm doing ethics workshops of various kinds, whether with faculty or community members or whatever, or an organization, whatever it might be. You know, how optimistic should we be at the prospects of ethics education and improving, say, um, the behavior and convictions and motivations of individuals or organizations. Um, are you generally optimistic on that front? I mean, I'm assuming you are on some level, given the work you do, but can, you know, sometimes people are skeptical about that while well, you can't, you can't teach people to be ethical. So what are we really doing? Right. So I'm wondering what, I'm assuming you got that question in some form before and, and how you generally think about that and respond to it.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I talk about myself as being kind of, uh, obstinately or relentlessly optimistic in the sense that I just keep going at it, but it's not optimistic in the sense that I expect it's always going to work. You know what I mean? It's more, it's more just a persistence and almost an annoying persistence. Um, But that said, I do think there is room for some optimism, which is that, you know, some of the basis of GBV was really the research that suggests that Um, if you want to impact people's behavior, that rehearsal and practice and peer coaching are effective strategies to do that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like the the positive deviance kind of research and the research on habit formation, Mm -hmm. and even the neuroscience research around brain plasticity and creating new neural neural pathways. And I always talk about, you know, muscle memory, you know, only as a metaphor. Um, And so I do think there is room for that. Um, In fact, even the research that's been done on education that's trying to look at how do you get uh, women, for example, to speak more in classes young, like young students when maybe the girls don't talk as much as the boys. And they find that, you know, if they speak earlier and and in runs they're more likely to speak, you know, and, and things like that. So I think there's a lot that suggests that just doing this and and being around other people and actually practicing the conversation with the very kind of person you might need to say it to, Mm -hmm. but you have the cover of it having been an assigned conversation. So you're not necessarily putting yourself on the line initially. So all of those reasons make me more optimistic. And if I may, I'll just tell you one story, which I, I really like, which is that there were a couple accounting faculty Um, in the U.S. um, who, you know, a few years ago, there were so many challenges in accounting, and now there's required ethics education in order to get your CPA. And um, so these these two accounting faculty had been teaching undergraduate accountants, and they took it very seriously and they built ethics into sophomore, junior, senior year. And then senior year, they gave an assignment to the students where they said, um, answer this problem. And then submit your answer online at this website. And then after you've submitted your your problem answers, go to this other website. But don't go to the other website first because it'll have information that affects your answer. Well, of course they could tell, and almost all the students went to the other website first, you know, and they were very discouraged because they just spent three years trying to teach about accounting ethics and right. these kids are cheating, you know. So that's when I met them and they liked the idea of GBV. So they thought, well, we'll try it. So they built GBV into the sophomore, junior, senior year. And so by the time they had another group of seniors, they ran the same exercise and none of them went to the other website before they handed in their assignment. Now you can't say that's because of GBV. It's not from a research sense, you can't prove causal connection. Yes. But it was fairly provocative, <laughs> you know. Um, they ended up writing a paper about it. Um, you know, so it was kind of interesting. And what I find even more compelling is that those seniors, there's a national accounting sort of fraternity mm-hmm. and schools, you know, students can apply projects uh, to win an award, a national award. And these students at a relatively small school, Competing with all the major accounting univer- you know, accounting programs in universities across the country, they won the national prize for their project, which was they decided was their idea they decided they were going to teach GvV to the next group of sophomores who were coming up declaring their major in accounting so apparently it had made enough of an impact on them that they wanted to be the ones to pass it on to the to the next cohort and that actually even meant more to me you know because I thought well that's that's how it has impact as if it's coming from your peers you know
1: fantastic Thank, yeah, thanks for sharing that that's powerful. and you know actually we, we, we do some work here with the accounting department um, I mean we're, our, our Institute runs across the campus but one of our faculty fellows for this year we sponsor faculty members who are doing ethics research and pedagogy is an accounting faculty member dr. G Lee and actually her project is on researching current modules out there for accounting ethics and trying to oh. trying to develop a model for CSUB faculty and also practicing accountants in our current county community. So um, I'm hoping she attends your workshop uh, uh, next me week. Me
0: too, and feel free to, to tell her to reach out to me and I'll send her some stuff if she's curious.
1: Great, thank you, um, I appreciate that. Um, so a, a question here, so oftentimes when we think about ethics, we focus a lot on the individual, like whether the individuals acting ethically or not, whether they're failing or not, right? But I think what we know from major problem, major ethics scandals, let's say, right? I was a faculty member at Penn State. I uh, remember the, the whole oh
0: uh, yeah
1: and the kind of the culture at that at the university and issues that were raised around around that issue. Um, these are these are cultural issues in part too. And so I'm wondering, when you work with business and organizational leaders, what advice do you give them about developing an ethical culture in the workplace that that yeah. supports ethics? behavior and integrity, like, how, you know, how, how do you think about that in, in
0: your work? Right. Well, so often when I get invited to go into an organization, the senior leaders will sort of, you know, is a program for the middle and lower level managers, right? Because you don't need this if you're a senior leader, right? You already know how to voice your values. And increasingly, people are actually kind of engaging in conversations at the senior level, too, for the reasons you were pointing out. But I realized I needed to kind of reframe it a little bit to to make it feel relevant and also more appealing to senior leaders. So we actually talk about GVV at the top of the organization. We talk about three things. The first is that you still need to do the rehearsal, the practice, the peer coaching around how to speak to your senior peers. Because a lot of times the decision-making is happening not to your boss, but maybe in that C-suite conversation, or if it's a partner organization among the senior partners, okay. and these are folks that you need to maintain a collegial relationship with. And so it's, it, it sort of appeals to the ego a little bit more too, because it's not like you need to talk to your boss, but you need to figure out how to communicate with those peers. Okay. If, you know, you look at all the problems with corporate governance around, you know, kind of uh, board capture, <laughs> you know, um, it's it's trying to address some of those issues. So we talk about, and when you frame it that way, people get it because they know that these are people they may not agree with, but it's hard. The second level is what you just laid out, which is how do you create a culture that enables, encourages, supports voice, and then the third layer, which actually connects with the second, is how do you hear it when someone raises these issues with you. Um, How do you respond? Because of course, you still need to do your own due diligence. But often the way we respond is, you know, it's never good news. It's always time consuming or costly. You may feel accused and you need to do your own checking and often the response lets the person who raised the issue feel like they've just been dismissed or disregarded or maybe even retaliated against. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we explain it that way, and then we say, and now you use the same GVB methodology to rehearse those kinds of scenarios. So I'll give you a little example. I was doing a program for Unilever in Nigeria, and we were designing a training program that we were gonna train a group of high potential uh, middle managers to then deliver throughout the rest of the organization. And I was going to, I spent a a week there gathering stories. And then I went back with the sort of customized GVV for Unilever Nigeria stories. Mm -hmm. And I was supposed to do a two-day training for these middle managers who were going to be the champions of this. And at the last minute, they asked me if the senior leadership team, which is about eight or 10 people, could also attend the workshop which of course, as you know, it's like the holy grail, you're delighted to get the senior, but it also was scary. <laughs> you know, they didn't know how it was gonna go. Yeah. So we, we did a whole bunch of stuff. We had online programs and all this stuff. But when we got to the in-person, at one point when they got to the GVV scenarios, we put all the middle managers at their own tables and they did the usual GVV exercise. You know, here's, it's post decision-making, here's the right thing to do. How could you be effective at getting it done? you know, raising it with your boss or whatever. We put the senior leaders at their own tables and we said, how could someone bring this to you in a way that would make it easier for you to respond appropriately? So they weren't being cast as villains, but they were being asked to think about how they respond and how they wish it would be brought to them. So when we came together for the debrief, it was kind of great because they started engaging in this natural sort of social contracting. You know, where the senior leaders were saying, well, if you make an appointment, don't just grab me in the hall and drop it on me. And if you bring some some data, so I, I have a sense of where this is coming from. Right. And if you present it in a problem solving way rather than an accusatory way, you know, and then the middle managers were saying, well, if you didn't kill the messenger. And if you actually followed up with me to let me know what was happening to the extent that you could. Yeah. And if you thanked me. And so they ended up doing that and they ended up, I had not planned this, but they created what they called the GVV contract where they were signing on, if you present it this way, I promise to respond in this way and they all signed it, etc. And so the idea was that you're creating a different kind of problem solving conversation rather than an accusatory conversation. And that, I think, is the beginning of trying to create a culture that supports this kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I love that. And also kind of a good basis for starting an a authentic dialogue, right? You kind of one in partnership.
0: Exactly.
1: Which is so crucial. Yeah, that's fantastic.
0: I mean, um, there's lots of other ways, but I just think that's a good example.
1: Yeah, no, really very helpful. Um, so Mary, if our listeners want to learn more about uh, giving voice to values and your work, where, where are some of the best places for them to go to learn more?
0: Yeah, um, they can go to the websites, which it's uh, givingvoicetovalues.org is the University of Virginia Darden website. And then there's just givingvoicetovaluesthebook.com. That one's a simpler website (laughs) to find your way around UVA. It's a little more complicated. There's, There's more at the UVA one. But if they go to either one of those, they'll start to get a feel for it. And then they can always follow up by just emailing me at the University of Virginia. And I will always respond and send more targeted information
1: also i can say i can i can attest to the fact that that's true mary is the fastest i thought i was faster responding to emails mary, mary i think is under 30 second response
0: <laughs> i don't like to have too much of a cluttered inbox i, Otherwise... I
1: think it's so funny i'm the same way i think i'm almost maybe a little ocd it's like i i have, to have <laughs> Me too. I, I'm, I'm constantly seeking inbox zero
0: <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs>
1: Um, So I also just want to recommend Mary's book, uh, Giving Voice to Values, How to Speak Your Mind When You Know What's Right. Um, I've I've read it, I've used it. If you're interested in thinking about ethics, um, ethical leadership, organizational ethics, creating ethical culture in your workplace, your organization, um, super useful. So I would highly recommend that. Thank Um, you.
0: And you know, I'll just mention that we have a Giving Voice to Values book series from Rutledge Publishing where there's different applications. So like GVV in accounting or GVV in the law or in corporate governance or okay. in medicine, you know? So if people have specific interests, they can look there too. I awesome. didn't write all of those. I just am the editor of the series. <laughs> awesome.
1: Fantastic, thank you. Um, so Mary, we, we don't close the pod with uh, our tradition. It's called the lightning round. And it's
0: <laughs> okay. five,
1: five fun questions, just kind of help our listeners get to know you better, some things about you as a person. Um, and uh, I'll just jump into it. Um, uh, the first question is: uh, what, is one, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've received in your life?
0: Oh, geez. Um, I guess. I guess um, you know. Uh, much earlier in my career, somebody uh, told me that. Um, you know, I was always worrying that was I was I insightful enough? Was I saying something new enough? Was I was it, you know, was I smart enough? And somebody said, you know, it's not so much as, as the level. It's, it's just that whatever you say is going to be uniquely the way you say and experience it. And for somebody that will communicate. And, and it just helped me feel freer to have my own voice and to figure, you know, may not be the smartest or newest or only one who ever said this, but it's, I'm going to say it in a way that will connect with somebody who is like me.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. I think that's useful for our students to hear a lot too. It comes to mind for me, kind of helping them feel more confident in what they're saying and who they are. Um, If you could have dinner with any two people, past or present, uh, who would they be and why?
0: So it's interesting that you say two people um, because I was thinking about who I would have dinner with. And my first answer the answer is not that surprising. The reason might be surprising. My first answer was Barack Obama and the reason I wanted to have dinner with him was to talk about Well, how does it feel to have worked as hard as you have and to see so many things unraveled? Yeah. <laughs> as we all go through that we work really hard on something and then it doesn't always last <laughs> You know.
1: Right, but
0: Then I was talking about this with my partner and she said Abraham Lincoln and I thought well that's kind of interesting because in some ways he has the same story and the same challenge. So I thought it would be good to have them both together. <laughs> well, it'd interesting
1: so. dinner. And then would be just a question of what, what would you eat with them? Would it be yeah, a good,
0: yeah,
1: be Japanese? What, what would the food choice Soul be?
0: Food. I don't know. So,
1: um, what is your favorite hobby or, or a favorite hobby that you have outside of work?
0: Oh, interesting. I guess I'm, I'm a big, my father was a veterinarian. I'm a big animal fan. So spending time with my dog, <laughs> and I look forward to, in retirement, there's, a, there's a, the New England Equine Rescue Center near where I live in Massachusetts, and I look forward to uh, spending time with the horses.
1: <laughs> awesome. Um, you've traveled all over the world with your work, and so this question, if you could live anywhere in the world for one year, um, say maybe going out of quarantine, you have this choice to yeah. choose a year, where would it be?
0: yeah. So two answers, very, very different, either Paris or um, uh, South Africa uh, near Kruger, because um, I, one of the best trip in my entire life was a safari there.
1: So. All right. Uh, and last but not least, uh, if you were stranded on an island and you could have one book with you, uh, which book would you take?
0: Anna Karenina. <laughs>
1: Scott it's, it's long too, so you could- uh, It's
0: long, it'll keep me busy, and I, it, it made a big impact when I was younger.
1: <laughs> awesome. awesome, So Mary, it's been so wonderful talking with you. Um, really, really excited for me too. your talk next week, October 22nd, 6 p.m. Um, everybody, please join us. It should be fantastic, and it's been fantastic. Thanks for sharing your insight, and thanks for the, the work you do. It's, it's super important in our world today.
0: Thank you, it was a lot of fun. Thanks
1: for listening to the Ethicist Corner Podcast, a production of the Kegley Institute of Ethics. To hear future episodes, follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or iHeartRadio. Please join us on Thursday, October 22nd at 6 p.m. Pacific Time for Mary Gentile's Kegley Institute Lecture, Giving Voice to Values, the How of Values-Driven Leadership. This lecture is free and open to the public via Zoom. You can find the event Zoom link at www.csub.edu K-I-E or on our K-I-E social media.